It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Welcome to Cheap Talk. Today our guest is Rick Shaluga, who has a bit of a history with a band we all know and love, Cheap Trick. And he'll talk about the early days and his new project that he's working on with Bun E. Carlos, so stick around for that. We check the podcast Cheap Talk mailbag occasionally, and we have a letter from Gordon Caffrey. And he says, Ken, I've been a listener of the podcast since some of the earliest episodes back in 2008. I've been a fan of Kiss since 1979 and a fan of the Beatles as long as I can remember and a fan of many other bands. But I've never known much about Cheap Trick other than the radio single Surrender, I Want You to Want Me in the Flame. I usually agree with your opinion on Kiss and music, so I decided to give the Cheap Trick podcast a try and have bought each album that you guys have reviewed as I've walked through the podcast with you. I'm currently on episode 12, Cheap Trick 97. That's a great one, right, PJ? Yeah, yeah. Up until now, I have enjoyed Cheap Trick's music, but I have enjoyed it sort of at a distance, with an appreciation for Robin's voice, Rick's guitar, and the energy of the music, but not with the really avid desire to listen to it repeatedly. I think it's hard to jump into a new band and have the same enthusiasm as someone that grew up with that music. It just takes a while for me to internalize music. That all changed with Cheap Trick's 1997 album. Wow. I often get fixated on one album for a year or two and make it my go-to album while I'm listening at work or in the car. I have a strong feeling that I will be absorbed into this album for a while now. This is an awesome album. I love the melodies, themes, lyrics, and the sound of the album. Thanks for turning on to something that I would have otherwise never appreciated. I appreciate your podcast. They really connect with me and my love for good music. Gordon Caffey. So, Gordon over there in Conway, Arkansas. like to uh, encourage you to check out the rest of the Cheap Trick discography, and you are definitely well on your way. Aren't you? Doesn't it make you feel happy to hear when somebody's listening to good music for the first time, BJ? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great email. It's great yeah. to hear. And I love it when uh, KISS fans primarily get turned on to Cheap Trick because, you know, it's part of the network that we have. And uh, it, it's neat to hear people like Dave McMullen, who who was always a bit of a Cheap Trick fan, but now he's like hardcore, and shout out to him. And just people, you know, sending you an email or a Facebook message saying, hey, I just bought the box set, you know, because a lot of people say, well, where should I start? And I just go, get the box set. <laughs> yeah, the box set, except uh, they left He's a Whore off. But uh, yeah, the box set is awesome. I yeah, mean, yeah, and yeah. it's a great place. To... Great stuff. All right, well, let's uh, play a little tune here, and it'll take us to the interview with Rick Shaluga. All right, Richard Shaluga speaking. Uh, currently in the band Thrift Shop with Bunny Carlos and Steve Summers, and I'd like you to listen to our song, Good and Plenty. I hope you enjoy it.
and welcome once again to another edition of Cheap Talk. And BJ, we have somebody exciting on the line who's a part of Cheap Trick history. Who is this gentleman? Uh, the gentleman on the line was actually technically the original bass player in the band that was called Cheap Trick, Rick Zaluga. Hello, Rick. Welcome to the show, Rick. How Hi are there. you today? Hi there. How are you two? We're, we're doing okay. Was it difficult having two Ricks in Cheap Trick at the time? Uh, no. Um, as you uh, probably aware, uh, Bun was known as Bun, and uh, Randy Hogan was known as Zeno. Mm-hmm. Mr. Nielsen was known as Rick, and I was known as Kid Corvette. So I think, for the most part, they called me Kid. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, I think, did- I think I know Bun did. I don't remember what Rick probably called me hey you but I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> now did this uh, kid corvette name where'd that come from uh well i th- i don't know it came from it came from my you know just from my imagination but it was the time when uh ziggy stardust was very popular and there were a lot of uh glam names and uh i remember nielsen uh didn't like uh, Randy's name, and I think that was, I, I don't think Randy picked that. I think uh, that was given to him, and I believe that was the drummer's name from the Philadelphia band that uh, they had just come back from. I think the, that band was Sick Man of Europe, and mm-hmm. it was, uh, yes, what was it, Stooky and Bun and Rick and guitar player. No, Bun wasn't in it. It was a drummer, and they called, I think his name was Zeno. I probably have my uh, facts wrong, but yeah, Zeno was given the name. and So it was, in, let's say, I'll put it to you this way, it was strongly encouraged that I get a name. Very good. Now, how did you first hook up with everybody? Uh, could you take us back to those days? Well, um, <clears throat> didn't really... Let's see, they were a couple of, we, uh, Bun, Rick, and I went to, and Tom Peterson, and Tom's younger brother, Jimmy, we all went to a local high school, Guilford High School. They were a couple of years older than me, and uh, they were, they were playing musicians at all times, uh, Bun and Bun had his band, The Pagans, and let's see, Tom was in Toast and Jam, and uh, Rick had the Grim Reapers, and they were older than me, so I would go to see them at uh, school dances and mm-hmm. wherever they played. There was a actually a really cool little bar that uh, wasn't a bar, it was an all-ages joint, and it was called The Rumpus Room, and it was about 20 miles east of Rockford in a small town, Belvedere, Illinois. And they played there quite a bit, and that was open on the weekends, and that's where we would go on the weekends for the most part. And there was, like, I saw the, it was a really cool place in that they had great bands. I saw the original Fleetwood Mac there. I remember Blue Cheer played, and I was smart enough not to go see Blue Cheer. Um, there was a band out of Chicago called The Flock that played there. They were kind of a art rock 
kind of a progressive thing. They had a violin player, but um, so for the most part, we'd go out there and see bands. But definitely the highlight out there was uh, seeing the original Fleetwood Mac, the original blues band with Jeremy Spencer and those guys, Peter Green. But uh, so <clears throat> I knew them just by sight. They were, you know. I knew who Bun was, uh, but uh-huh. I didn't know him from school because I wasn't in his grade. You know, if you, I'm sure you guys remember when you're younger, age makes a big difference. If you're 15, <laughs> boy, oh boy, you don't hang out with the 16-year-olds, you know. Right. So, uh, it's weird. So so I knew him that way, and uh, I just knew him around, and I wasn't really playing. I had a girlfriend that kind of just... Uh, she was hot enough where I just gave up on music and just hung out with her and her friends. And so that was all. I just knew them from their bands. When you joined the band, was it called Cheap Trick yet? No, there was no band. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you the brief history on that. I hadn't played and why I didn't make it and all. Um, I hadn't been playing music for three or four years. My, uh, my, uh, music had really stopped oh probably when i was about uh 15 or something i had a little band with um cheap tricks bass player's little brother jimmy peterson and we were called steel blue steeled blues um which was a b-side to a yardbird song yardbirds hit and i forget what the hit was but it was the b-side and we called ourselves that and we played Jimi Hendrix and, and uh, Cream and uh, The Who and you know all of the some Stones but more the poppy the power pop uh, stuff from from that uh, from that era uh-huh. and uh, then uh, I gave up I didn't give up music it just went on the wayside it was never really like first and foremost. Um, um, to me, you know, I, I had other interests other than just playing music, and so kind of got out of it. And then uh, after I graduated from high school, I got a phone call, and I got a phone call from Nielsen. He asked if I was still playing bass, and I said, uh, not really, but uh, I still know how to play. And he asked if I wanted to go to Minot, North Dakota. And I thought I would be going with him, and Rick was the probably, you know, Rick, I think it already, yeah, Fuse had already been and gone, and so he was really well-known, and they were a really good band, and um, knew the guys from that band, too, but I wasn't playing, and so he called and asked if I wanted to go to my, play bass and go to Minot, North Dakota. He's a tricky son of a bitch, Rick is, so I thought he was forming a band and wanted me to go and found out later what had happened was uh, he had been asked to go to Minot and play bass and because uh, he had always dabbled in bass and mm-hmm. he said no and he I think uh, found someone to go play bass and so this was like his introduction to me so I signed on to go play bass I went to uh, Minot North Dakota we had like an 18 hour rehearsal we were supposed went with these two guys in this band. I think they were called Weezer Lockinger. And I went with a a former drummer of my band, Steel Blues. And 
So we go out to mine. We have 18 hours rehearsal. We pack up a van, not a van. We pack up a trailer and a station wagon. We go out to Minot, North Dakota after 18 hours of rehearsal. We show up. We totally suck um, <laughs> because we know very few. We know enough music to play maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and we got to do 445s. So while I was there, I didn't want, I had just broken up with that girlfriend that kept me out of the music, uh, from playing music as much as I probably would have liked to. So um, I was very uh, vocal and energetic about let's learn four hours worth of music or 445s worth of music. Let's practice, 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 because I don't want to go back to Rockford, Illinois. I'd like to stay out here all um, three weeks. And at the rate we're going, we're not going to be able to stay. Well, the other guys in the band were bums, and all they wanted to do was drink. So um, we got through, we got sent back home after a, a week, and uh, shortly thereafter, I got a call from Nielsen asking me if they wanted to play, come over and play bass, and I said yes. And I think he had probably been misinformed and told that I was uh, this hotshot bass player because I was real energetic about rehearsing because I didn't want to go back home to Rockford, uh-huh. but. Uh, so I ended up going over, and it was me and Bun, and they had Randy, and uh, I think I was uh, referred to Rick by um, a fella that's no longer with us, passed away about 10, 15 years ago by the name of Stu Erickson. And so I went over, and I rehearsed, and I was good enough at least to get the band going, but uh I wasn't good enough to stick around for very long because I hadn't been playing, and we're talking about guys who played all the time, and you know. So it was four months of a cheap trick, and then I was out. Four months. Stu Erickson had been in the band. He had been the bass player in the band before you, right? For a short time. Yeah, but I don't think they. Yeah, I don't think they. I don't think they were called cheap. I know. I I know they weren't called. Well, shit, I don't remember, but I don't really think they had a name. I think what they did was they did a couple of rehearsals, and Stu's wife had told him that if he started playing music again, Stu was kind of a sketchy character uh-huh. um, and was told by his wife that he, if, he, if he were to get in a band and start playing music, that their marriage would be over. Wow. So, uh yeah, so he, he he was working, his dad, I think, owned a office supply company, so he was working for his dad, and he kept saying, call me, because Stu and I had played together for a short period of time, never, I don't even know if we ever made it out. So Stu, I wouldn't say it was really in Cheap Trick, because if I recall correctly, the band was named, and there weren't any gigs or anything, so I was was the original bass player but it was all just the formative time do you remember when the name was actually decided upon well i don't think there was much decision i think it was nielsen and then he said he liked it and then i mean it is a good name so everybody else just agreed but it was in, uh, what i remember is we were in this i think we were in uh nielsen's dad's garage rehearsing and he came up with a name and we said yeah sure so it was, you know, it was like, right, we needed a gig, we needed a name because uh, Rick's man, I don't know if he was a manager or just a booking agent at the time, but uh, the guy, Ken Adamani, 
yeah. we'd gotten a gig and gotten some gigs or something, and so we needed a name. I mean, we were at least good enough to. I was filling the job well enough to at least go out and play some jobs, play some gigs. So, how many gigs did you play? About how many gigs did you play with the band? Don't know. Um, I have no recollection on that. I think we were for the four months. I think we tried to play as often as possible. There were there were dates sometimes in the middle of the week, mainly the weekends. I'd say, you know, mainly Madison, and because that that's where Ken was and. We just took uh, took some jobs. I don't really know though. It all kind of, you know, four months four months from thirty plus years ago goes by pretty quick. You kind of yeah, forget, I can imagine. It just gets blurry. <laughs> there, there's a story in Mike Hayes's book about Cheap Trick about how Rick used to do a song called "I Was Cool" by Oscar Brown on the electric violin. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, but I don't remember it being done. Yeah, you know what? Now that you bring it up, I do remember it. I don't remember how the I don't remember how the song goes, but I think it was a showcase for Rick just um, being entertaining. I've always lived by this golden rule. Whatever happens. Don't blow your cool You gotta have nerves of steel And never show folks how you honestly feel I've lived my whole life this way For example, take yesterday I breezed home happy bringing her my pay Her note read so long sappy I have run away I threw myself down across our empty bed And this is what I said So loaded, I tore up my car. The judge threw the book at me, and when I read his sentence, there I sit. I was over 
say, be cool, play it cool, stay cool, keep cool, cool. And, and since his dad owned that music store, he had a bunch of electric violins, and it says he used to smash the violin at the end of the song. <laughs> Do I don't... I don't recall that, but yeah, his his dad was a real character. His dad used to wear a. His dad wore this. Um, dad was probably in his fifties at this time, and his dad had graying hair around his temples and bald, and he wore like a auburn uh, toupee, and he wasn't too um, particular about the way it fit or the way it looked. His dad was. <laughs> Yeah, his 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 dad was a re- his dad was really nice. Was always really good to us. Um, but uh, his dad was quite a character. He had a Rockford. You know, it's a pretty small town, about one hundred forty thousand, and I think it's remained that since the sixties. But uh, there was most of the music. All of the music stores were on, except for one, Gazzardo's Music. But uh, all of the two or three music stores were on. Uh, Seventh uh, Street, and then there was one that we had to walk another block down. So, what we would do before Cheap Trick, when we were kids, um, I'd go down there with my guitar player, and we'd uh, walk between all the music stores. And uh, one of the better ones was Nielsen's, and then there was some music store called K's. I forget her last name, but uh, she had a music store, and then there was a music store called Wolf. And, Nielsen's had the Gib- Nielsen had the Fenders. I remember that. We went over to the uh, the Wolf store. There was Guilds and Gretches and that kind of stuff. And then this ladies' music store. I think she was a female bass player. She uh, had Fenders and some other things and some Tyscos and some crap guitars and stuff. But that's what we would do. And we'd go in. And I remember Nielsen's father. Whenever we were in there, was always like could be entertaining. Rick was in there sometimes working part-time and stuff, so yeah, that's what we did. And when you were in the band, uh, were you playing mostly covers at these shows? Oh, I think all covers. All covers? Yeah, I yeah, I think all covers, yeah. It was really just something to get the band going, and... Uh, you know, Nielsen was always enough of a showman and Bon a good enough drummer, and Randy was a good enough singer where um, I wouldn't say that we were popular, but I would say that we were good enough to get invited back. I don't recall ever having any. You know, bar owners, for the most part, are pricks, and I don't recall ever having any real difficulties or not being invited back. I could be wrong about that, but. You know, we were good enough to go out and play, but yeah, um, Slade songs, and let's see, Slade, remember some Neil Young, geez, uh, Suffragette City, I don't remember a lot of that stuff, though, it's just four hours worth of music, good stuff, probably The Who. But, and there was there was one recording session with Zeno where they recorded Hot Tomato and... I think Daddy should have stayed in high school. Were you still in the band no, I at that time? No, no, that would have that would have been been after me. That would have been with Tom. Okay, yeah, I was in the band. I was in the band for four months, and then 
after about three, and I wasn't, it was really frustrating for me being in the band in that I knew how good the band, I knew who I was playing with and I knew how good they were and I knew that they were years ahead of me as far as um, professionalism because I had just started to play again. So it was a frustrating time because I knew I had the talent. I knew I was a, a good bass player, but I knew that I was just not ready at the time. And it turned out to be really good for all people concerned in that I didn't stop them from going on. And once they got Tom back, I mean, the rest was, you know, I guess you'd say history. And Tom, Tom was a better bass. Tom's like a rhythm guitar player, and he was, ended up being a better bass player for them. I play more of a traditional bass, so I think uh, I think with Tom's looks and Robin's looks, it eventually worked out for the best for everybody. Well, at least you kept the band going. I mean, because you kept their momentum going. Had they not, you know, had you, or you know, they would have had to yeah, well, no, possibly just... stop dead in their tracks. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it hadn't been, if it if I hadn't been at least good enough, well, they probably would have kept. You know, who can say? But yeah, I was around. I was good enough to get the band off the ground, and um, they talked me uh, Peterson from coming. They talked Peterson into coming back from Philadelphia because after Sick Man of Europe broke up. Um, after Sick because Sick Man of Europe, I think had a. They had a record deal in Philadelphia, or they almost had a record deal in Philadelphia, and it fell through because of their manager. I I don't know any of the details. I probably know that history the same as you guys from reading. Right. But uh, they, uh, you know, they talked Tom. And Tom was living in Philadelphia, and they talked Tom into coming back. And um, I think Bun. Bun tried to be in Sick Man of Europe, but didn't quite cut it. And so Bun was never in Sick Man. And, uh, I, I, but again, I, I could be wrong about all of that, but I do remember that uh, Tom was living in uh, Philadelphia and uh, we were playing in Milwaukee and Tom was in the audience and I knew I was done, but I knew I was done before that. I knew I just wasn't cutting it, so I drank more. And, you know. <laughs> You know, drank more and uh, had a good time in my own way and kind of just separated myself. It helped facilitate the move, you know, huh. the move uh, to a new bass player. Well, was Rick, was Rick Nielsen writing songs when you were around? Like, did you see him writing songs or did you play them at rehearsal or anything? Um, the only, I, we attempted one or two songs. One, uh, the one that I remember was Mandicello. And he was writing, but I, uh, I don't know that he ever stops writing. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I think it was, it was a transitional phase, and it's like the band just wasn't quite up to snuff yet. And you know, like when you're in a band for four months, especially back then, and you're wanting to play out in bars and, and make a little bit of money and bring in, a, you know, start to bring in some people and build a reputation. You can't. St- if you start out playing original music, people are just going to look at you and wonder what the hell you're doing. So, I think right. if he was writing, I think he was woodshedding at home, and he wasn't really sharing a lot with us. And I think that 
I think the songs that he was bringing in, he had done with, the, you know, Sick Man of Europe. I went and saw those guys once up in, in uh, at Beloit College up in Wisconsin, and they were kind of a, were kind of progressive. They did like, you know, and what is it, the song, um, Dream Police, where it gets kind of goofy. Uh-huh. Yeah, Ultramental. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. That they start doing some of that bullshit, um, the diminished cards and things like that. Rick, you know, that was more like what Sick Man of Europe was like, and then they brought some of that stuff in and transferred it. But I think Rick was probably, and this is just conjecture on my part, but I think Rick was probably going through a transitional phase, trying to figure out, you know, who's in the band, what kind of band do we have what kind of material would best suit this band, who's singing, what can the singer do, what can the drummer do, all that kind of stuff. So I think he was probably more interested in just getting the band up and running and seeing how good they were. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I think that sounds exactly right. Yeah, when we talked to Stookie, Stookie said that Sick Man of Europe was doing mostly original songs. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you can go ahead. Um, yeah, they were, like I say, I think I only saw them once, maybe twice, and uh, they were doing original songs. Some of them turned into cheap trick songs, you know, mm-hmm. steal apart here and there. And But, uh, yeah, for the most part, they yeah, they were all original songs because they were trying to get signed. And because, uh, you know, he had a, Rick had a taste of it with uh, Fuse, right. and Stukey had a taste of it with Naz. So, I mean, they were just trying to, you know, get to the next level. But when you're starting a band, you don't know what to do. And if you're smart, and Rick is most definitely smart, you figure out what you got. You don't you write for what you have. You don't uh, write and then try to force a square peg into a round hole, I guess. Right. So a, a few years after you left Cheap Trick, you ended up in this band called The Names. Um and yeah, I actually, that, I actually yeah. have your single. I have the single by that band. I think I kind of screwed up the names. They were a, or the nicknames. They were a real power pop group, and I didn't play on that. Um, they Rick Pemberton, I believe, played the bass guitar because Dave Galuzzo was the bass player live, but he wasn't all that good. So I think Pemberton played the bass on that, and then uh, that band fell apart. And uh, so they brought me in, and because the thing was coming out, they needed a picture. And so instead of like going with old pictures, because we had a little band going, you know, I they put me in, and then I think we lost the drummer and shit. I don't even yeah, the drummer wasn't on the recording. That Matt Finn guy, he wasn't on it. And I think on the back, isn't there? Does it show a keyboard player? Uh, yep, Hauser? Yeah. Yeah. Steve. Yeah, Hauser. he was. He, yeah, he wasn't a part of the recording either. That was the original band, which was the only guys I remember were uh, Pemberton and uh, Galuzzo were in that. I forget who the other players were. Okay. Yeah, that was just, that was a short-lived thing, and pretty much after I got in it, nicknames disappeared, and we became the names, and we were a little harder. And that's those are the guys that you see on the back of that record. That was actually nicknames. And, uh, okay. Oh, so okay, and uh, yeah, that's a but that's a pretty legendary power pop single. And that song "Why Can't It Be" was on the Rhino compilation in the '90s. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, you see, we should have kept doing that, but I wasn't into that as much. I was more a little heavier, but uh, so I kind of screwed up the names. I'll take full, full credit for kind of messing those guys <laughs> up because I, I kind, you know, looking hindsight, looking back hindsight, the, the, that's what we should have done. Um, you know, uh, not necessarily from a musical standpoint, but from a career standpoint. 
because we had a little bit of momentum and then we changed gears and uh but it, it all goes back to uh Carrie Carrie Baker, the guy who owned the label. He was going to school at uh DeKalb, Northern Illinois University and you know, he I think weren't the shoes like involved with him or something, their first record? I'm not certain, but it's uh yeah, Carrie pretty much got that going. And I I wasn't around to know how they got to how they hooked up with Carrie. Probably playing the Red Lion down in DeKalb and Carrie would come out and see him. I'm thinking. I don't know. Yeah, well Dave Galuzzo has a a bunch more name songs on his Facebook page. Some of the heavier stuff that you're talking about or just the more rocking stuff. Which which ones are they? No more heartbreaks. It's a miracle. Get out of my way. Living in a subway. It will be all right. <laughs> you remember all those? <laughs> I remember the titles, but I don't remember the songs.
did, did the names play a lot of gigs? Oh yeah, we were. Yeah, we were. We played all the time. That's all we did. We played it, all the time and tried to get a record deal. And we didn't know how the songs were. The songs weren't bad, but we didn't couldn't arrange a song to save our life, and we weren't all that original, and we were all kind of mixed up. And, uh, I suppose the highlight. You guys know about the movie Terror on Tour. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, that's probably that's probably the highlight of the names. And- they play at murder in Terror on Tour. The group makes real music and make-believe death. I wonder what would happen if we threw a real body in. All cut up, real blood. Where's my 50 bucks? Until suddenly, their fantasy becomes real. played for fame and fortune, but someone was playing for keeps. Experience it all in Terror on Tour. killer was stalking the backstage shadows and sang a song of death. Next? No, you're next. Die! Who was hiding behind the mask and giving the crowd real blood? Who is spreading terror on tour? I remember getting a phone call at, uh, getting a phone call from our dumbass manager and to go do that movie and categorically said, absolutely fucking not. I didn't want to be anywhere near that manager again, but we ended up work orchestrating a deal through a Chicago attorney to get us out of the, he had a guy, we were just so young and naive. He had some like kind of contract with us and he thought he had control over us and something was going to happen and blah, blah, blah. And we sucked and we pretty much knew it, but we, I don't know. And then we ended up agreeing to do the movie to get out of the recording contract and the, so he let us go. We gave him full rights to the name, the names, and we got a two-week paid vacation in Hollywood and uh, a DVD. Or excuse me, they didn't have DVDs, then, <laughs> and we got a VHS of uh, Terror on Tour. <laughs> yeah, you were the clowns in the in the movie. Yeah, damn right we were. <laughs> Another proud moment. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, that movie has never actually been released on DVD. So uh, I saw there's one yeah. VHS on Amazon, I think, for like $139. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, but, uh, I have I have one at home, and I've had friends like cut cut copies for me, and they they work for a short period of time, and then they end up getting corrupted somehow. Mm. But yeah, it uh, I think what the deal was the the dude there's a fat guy in that movie who was the actual producer of the movie. And his name was Tobe or Kobe or I don't know, but you know he was like a big fat guy who slurred his words because his cheeks, his he had jowls and he had spittle all the time and yeah. wore big pinky rings and he did let's see it was 19, it was 1980 it was uh, end of end of November uh, first week or first two weeks of December something like that because I remember I was sitting in the breakfast area the breakfast eating breakfast in the restaurant at the hotel um when we heard the news that john lennon had been shot so what was that december 8th 1980 but uh the that guy put out four movies that were that were filmed all at pretty much the same time i think and they had to be shown in a theater for a tax write-off, and right. of those four movies, the two made it to light, and one was Terror on Tour, but the the biggest one, the one that uh, is kind of a cult classic, is um, Basket Case. Ever heard of Basket Case? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. It sucks, but it's really funny, because <laughs> like, like Terror on Tour wasn't quite bad enough to be a cult classic. It was just, you know, like straddling bad and good uh-huh. but uh, basket case was freaking brilliant because it was this guy this normal kid had a twin brother that looked like a lobster and he'd keep him in a he'd keep him in a basket and then he would control the normal brother's mind and so the uh, normal brother would like kill people and stuff for him and the normal brother would feed the basket guy uh, hot dogs, throw hot dogs in there. Uh-huh. If you know, if you like bad movies, you should rent Basket Case sometime because it's <laughs> pretty <laughs> fucking stupid. <laughs> Just in time for <laughs> so, Halloween. Yeah, so the- what is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket? What's in the basket? <laughs> Some of the tenants claim to have heard noises coming from this room. Like someone on a rampage. What's in the basket? You're that kid Needleman warned me about. The Bradley boy. The freak we separated. I know an awful lot of guys, Dwayne. But you're different. What's in the basket? What's in the basket? What's in the basket? My brother. (laughs) Open it, if you dare. Yeah, so that that's the story behind that. 
And it's it's a nice piece of trivia that uh, the guy that played your manager in that movie is the guy who played the soup Nazi on Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how um, yeah? How I found out I didn't I didn't realize. It. God, he was smarmy. He was, but um, how I found out we were. Uh, uh, I was dating a woman and she wanted to know about me and stuff, so I told her about the movie and she started googling it and that soup Nazi guy had his web page as he probably does and it, that's how we found out it was the soup Nazi but uh-huh. God I, he thought he was going to be something else I remember when I first met him he was one of those guys that could you know had that real smarmy grin and the strong handshake and said all the right positive words and could look at you without seeing you he was just a he was a creep they had done you understand that you understand that, don't you? Right. Right. They defiled themselves. You know, women like that have no right to bring children into this world. They have no right to have children see the filth that they live in. They can't become the mother. That's sick. That's sacred, and I won't allow it. Of all of them, of all of them, I liked you the best. You know, you, you could have, you could have helped me. I had to kill them. And you know I had, I had to kill them. They had no moral values at all. You were whores. All of them. No! But that was then. He could be a very nice gentleman now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he he thought he was well on his way to superstardom. Wow. Well, so I wanted to ask you about um, just the other bands uh, that were around at the same time as the names. Like, you know, when you ended up in EIEIO, you were with uh, Rob Harding, who was in Off-Broadway, and Mike Hoffman, who was in Yipes. So was there a whole, mm-hmm. like, Midwest power pop scene going on with, when the names were playing? There might have been, but I wasn't aware of it. Um, the thing with Mike Hoffman um, was that Steve Summers, the singer for EIO, I like to call them EIOUCH because it was a painful experience. Uh, but this, he had been, I don't know the name of the band, but he had worked with Mike Hoffman and Pete, I can't think of Pete's last name, Pete's a Chicago music attorney now and I forget the name of their band and there's a often God, they had a singer who was a who is now a stand-up comedian Michael McDonald I don't know but uh, so Steve had worked with him and Rob Harding we had backed up uh, off Broadway quite a bit and uh, I Harding and I got along really well, and he's he's a he's a real knucklehead. He's a hundred percent knucklehead, 
um, but he's a wonderful guitar player, and he, he's a real sweet man, but boy, he's a knucklehead. So the whole thing with EIH was that we had, uh, God damn, um, the whole thing with EIH was I was dating a woman who would become my wife. Her brother um, was the, ended up becoming the original drummer for EIH. His name was Tommy Chacho. He's on the first EIH thing. Right. Uh, God, that's not, yeah, he's on the first thing. But I started the band. To, he kept borrowing a car on weekends and not putting any gas in it. And I kept hearing her bitch about him and bitching. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not in the band. Maybe if I get him in a band and he makes 50 bucks over the course of the weekend, he can fill up her tank every now and then. So I started this stupid band. All I wanted to do was play Chuck Berry songs because you rehearse once and then you never have to rehearse again. Right, you know it. If you're playing in little shitholes like Prairie Moon and that kind of stuff, you can make your 50 bucks a night, so 100 bucks a weekend. And as long as people know the songs and can sing along and dance and you can keep a beat, you're good to go. Right. Steve didn't really care, but he wasn't into doing the Chuck Berry stuff. We had a guitar player by the name of Ernie who had just a brilliant surfer uh, pompadour. And those two had been, I forget the name of their band, but they had been Rockabilly guys. So Ernie wanted to play Rockabilly. I wanted to play Chuck Berry. Steve wanted to play, I think, American music, like the stuff from the 60s. So it could have been some surf rock and some James Brown and some Motown. And, and Tommy wanted to play country and about the only place where all four of us could agree was country so that that's how we got that and then of course we had to throw Tommy out and we had to throw Ernie out and that stuff but let's see the the scene back then I really don't know of any scene um you know it's just because when you're living in Rockford Illinois there is no such thing as scene as a scene there's like we used to tell people the best part about Rockford was that you could get in your vehicle and you were 90 minutes away from Madison uh, Milwaukee and Chicago uh-huh. so uh, right. but so yeah there was not much of a scene we just uh, kind of would go in and play and our whole exposure to like the bands that I recall are uh, Pez Band and Off Broadway and uh, I think that's about it unless you got other names I might remember them and then well, so you uh, did it. You, one. you didn't know Mike Hoffman when he was in Yipes. You just you met him later. I didn't know him. I knew of Yipes, but yeah, I didn't know Mike Hoffman very much. I knew that he was highly respected by Steve, but Mike, Mike Hoffman has a tendency to not want to commit, and just as you're getting ready to do something, he leaves. Mm. Like we were getting ready, EI Ouch was getting its record contract, and that's right when he quit to join semi twang and right. uh then him and the him and god fucking guitar players are a nuisance they're just <laughs> the most annoying people in the whole wide world right right behind drummers but so they get this now if this if you don't find this annoying so hoffman quits and then he tells us well, I never really wanted to play with a second guitar player anyway. And it's like, well, then why didn't you fucking tell us when we were starting, the, when we asked you to play? 
so we shared that with Robin. He goes, I never really wanted to play with Mike either because I wanted to be the only guitar player in the band. And it's like, you fucking idiots. So anyway, <laughs> Hoffman, <laughs> Hoffman leaves, and um, Hoffman leaves because he joined Semi-Twang. We're getting ready to be signed by CBS, and we have a dinner arrangement. They're ready to come out and sign us in the guy from CBS shows up and we're at the dinner and he looks around and he says, you know, I notice your band's a five-piece band and there's only four place settings for the members of the band. What's happened? So then we didn't get signed. So then we had to go out and play again. And by then, yeah, Tommy was still in the band, but then we had to fire Tommy because he was a junkie and, you know, and then it was just Rob. And so I don't know. A lot of good memories. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a, you know the names and EIAIO are real. Are both really, you know, like highly respected, highly regarded bands by you know like people in the know or nerds like me. But um, I mean, you did some great work with those groups, you know. Thank you, but you know, it was never, it could have always been better. You know, um, 
like if you listen to the first record um the drums sound like shit uh, well yeah that's the 80s was, though i mean the drums well, always sound like also <laughs> we, well we always we also ran out of money you know we yeah. ran out of money while we were recording and we were fighting with steve berlin for the normal reasons that you fight with producers and the second record the drummer was a better drummer than technically a better drummer that scott was a better technical drummer than tommy but scott seemed to have one tempo and uh tommy had a better feel but his rhythm his tempo wandered and you know and uh rob <laughs> uh rob was just Rob wouldn't show up to gigs at the end and even in the middle like uh, Rob was just Rob is the sweetest man but boy oh boy he's got his own way of doing things you know he wouldn't show up to gigs and uh -huh. Steve and I would be there and oh, just you know where's Rob and you know like one time we found him sleeping in his back of a back of his car he snuck out of a gig in Madison to supposedly go by airplane glue, and he went and crawled into the back of his car and fell asleep, and we went on two hours late, and, you know, he was just a goofball, just a goofball, just a, you know, but it turned, I think the way he thought also made him such a brilliant guitar player, because he was really good and very creative, probably the second best guitar player I ever worked with absolutely huh. well going back for a second I, I wanted to ask you um, did you know John Brandt and Pete Kamita at all when you were like when you were in the names and the bands that they were in I knew who they were um, you know yeah I knew who they were I didn't know, Pete was a guitar player. He wasn't a bass player. Pete was a guitar player. Right. Rumor always had it. He got hired because he looked more like Tom than anybody else, and he could do the gig, but he was never a good, he was never a bass player. John Brandt was a good bass player, but I didn't know him. Um, generally what happens, at least this was my, my experience, is when you were in a band, you would play with the band, and if you played with them a couple of times, you would end up, ponying up with a guy in the band not necessarily the whole band and uh, me it was Harding and with uh, the Pez band if I got along with anybody the best it would have been um, what was the guitar player's name was it Mickey the, uh, the, the Greek guy well Mickey was the drummer God, I can't think of the Greek guy's name but he was really good and I ponied up to him a little bit but for the most part yeah, I didn't hang out with people. I'm just, uh, you know, except for Rob. I hit it off with Rob. Maybe I'm a knucklehead, too. <laughs> so there were two bands that John Brand and Pete Comita were in, Star Driver and The Thumbs, that I know about. Did you did you ever see either of those bands or anything? The the first band, no, but The Thumbs I saw, yeah. The Thumbs were really pretty good. They followed Pez Band. They followed Pez Band, and they were really pretty good. Um they were good, you know, they were great, you know, and a lot, a lot of it was just because that guy Cliff, he, <laughs> Cliff was a fucking character, Cliff thought his shit was a work of art, Cliff <laughs> was a, yeah, he really did, he thought his 
he thought is like uh, here's some stories you might enjoy off this was more off Broadway I know I yeah you're really talking about guys you're talking about Cliff Johnson who was the singer in the thumbs yeah. and then off Broadway yeah 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 um we played a lot see, I, I got to know Rob more in off Broadway than the name um, backed up off Broadway quite a bit because we were both booked by Adam Annie off and on um, they were all the time but uh, we were we were off and on a little bit and so we worked with off Broadway quite a bit and Cliff they had a they had a road manager got Joe Love was their road manager and of course his job was to corral people from at the end of the gigs and make them get back in their Winnebago and that kind of stuff or in their in their uh <laughs> they had a rental station wagon and they drilled a hole when they started the band we played with them up here in Minneapolis where I live now at some some bar that I don't know if it's still around or not but they they loved to drink beer and they drilled a hole in the floorboard of this rental vehicle and then they attached they had a hose with a funnel on it so that they wouldn't have to stop to slow them down so they'd be able to drink as much beer as they wanted then they'd pee into the funnel and then it'd go, <laughs> go through the floorboard you know and out onto the highway so they wouldn't have to slow down their progress so that's <laughs> and I, I heard that when they were ready to upgrade to like a small Winnebago they couldn't turn the car back in because it all smelled like piss and then after a while they had the, the Winnebago and <laughs> see I don't have any stories like this about any of our antics because we were always just good little suburban boys we just didn't fucking party like like mad dogs the way those guys did but uh, Cliff shit in uh, the glove box of the Winnebago because they were angry at Joe Love because he would stop them from partying and they knew he would need a map at some point in time while he was driving, and the plan was, to, well, we just won't help him get in the glove box, and he could reach over, and then he grabbed the shit, and then they... <laughs> these guys weren't brilliant. They were mad at Adam Annie because the band was falling apart, and they took uh, hay bales and put them in there, and I think they blew off M80s in their in their motorhome because they were mad at Adam Annie and they owned it, and they're just stupid guys, but or, fine, or musicians, I guess, is another way of saying it. That's probably more accurate, but another thing that they did, um, God, let's see, what, oh, God, there's this, oh, they got Kenny into the band after the, the drummer left. So they get Kenny into the band and we're up in, uh, uh, the reason I know this is we were backing them up this time. We were up in another Minneapolis bar. We were staying at a hotel, motel, and the motel was the kind of where you could go from one room into the other room, you know? Uh -huh. And the, the beds were butted up against the same wall. You know, it was just a mirror image of the rooms. And so while they, they got Kenny out of the room, some people took Kenny, took him off someplace, and they took apart a lamp. And you know how the lamp has the, uh, uh, the support, that threaded rod that goes up from the base of the lamp up to the top yeah. of the lamp? Yeah. They, they took the two uh, paintings down off the walls, and they, they pounded that through the, <laughs> they pounded that through the wall at like a 45 or a 60 degree angle and then they cleaned up the mess 
put the paintings back on the wall. And then Kenny, when he went to bed that night, <laughs> he peed down the connecting rod and came down on his head and, <laughs> and the shit in his shoes. And they did all kinds of wonderful, nice things like oh, that. For him. So those guys, those guys were, those guys were nuts. And yeah. So, but yeah, so I didn't know, I didn't, you know, I just knew the guys I knew. And like I say, it was mainly Rob. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that, that's just some of the stories. I mean, there's a ton of stories about those guys. They were really, they were really characters. They were more along the lines of, um, you know, what we think about when we think about, you know, rock and roll knuckleheads. Those yeah. were that, those, they were those guys. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Yeah, right.
so you have a new band now called Thrift Shop with uh, Steve Summers, who was your singer back in EI Ouch, as you call it, and the drummer is yep. is Bunny Carlos, we, a name familiar yep. to people listening to the I, to the show. I think we might have heard mm -hmm. of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you have two EPs, but I think only the first one is on CD Baby right now. Is that correct? Or yeah, that's correct. The the second one we have issue. I have issues with um, over just mixed down things, but it's just uh, they were done at separate times, and then they were kind of finished up at the same time. But yeah, Thrift Shop is kind of a weird thing in that the three of us have only been together in the same room for a short period of time when we actually did the photographs. Um, it's you know this day this day and age you can do everything on computer. Right. And that's what we did. We, Steve and I, get together. We'd record song. We'd write a song and record it immediately. Then we ended up sending it to Bun. He put the drums down. Then we got it back and touched it up and mixed it. And it is what it is. So there's not not much forethought to thrift shop. It was really pretty much like. Well, the 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 story on thrift shop was I was riding my bicycle home from work one day about five years ago and at the time I was living in Shakopee Minnesota which is where Mystic Lake Casino is where a lot of bands go and play and oh one moment I like when you're playing um, so I'm riding my bike home one day and I look up and they have you know the electronic billboard and it says REO Speedwagon and Steve Summers has been Kevin Cronin's guitar tech for about 10 years and I go oh shit I haven't seen Steve in 20 years I can go see him when are they playing and it turned out that they played the night before so of course my timing was spot on and so uh -huh. I didn't get to see him but I got in touch with him and I said next time you're in town come on over and make you up a supper and stuff so we got together a couple of times and then it just came to the point where we would get together he would come to Shakopee and we would um, work on some material or I would go out to Sierra Madre where he lives with his wife and we would work on some material and so not much forethought it was more like um, reunion times you know it wasn't uh -huh. like there's no forethought to what should we sound like what should we do it was just like let's get together pick up a couple instruments see if anything happens and record it yeah, obviously uh, you're going for a lot of different styles um, in the songs. Like each song is a, is kind of a different style. It seems like. Yeah. And yeah, so are, are you each? So you're writing the songs together, or? Yeah, everything is. You see, when you have two songwriters, like EIO was two songwriters, and there's always some kind of a competition when you got two songwriters. Two songs are the best, or you know, what should we do, and blah blah blah. So we decided this time to just do um, co-writing. That way they would be both our songs. And because they were written over a period of years and because we weren't working together, technically, I mean, you know, we didn't have a band. There's no rehearsals. It was just like, well, what do you got? I got this part that goes like this, and let's see what we can make it. So, yes, it is very eclectic, um, which is fine. I mean, it prevents, uh, I think, it, uh, it discourages working with a major label because major labels like things to be cut and dried and, you know, 
categorized and things like that. But we were just doing it to be, um, to have some fun, make some music, and Bun listened to it and said, hey, that's pretty cool. Can I drum on it? And Well, how's Bun doing nowadays? We we read a few things. He's got his Facebook page and all that, but uh, he's doing well. I believe so. I mean, I don't stay in very close contact with him. I mean, I got an email or two from him just not too long ago. Um, I'm uh, working on a new thing uh, with uh, Bun. I'm hoping Bun will drum. He has agreed to drum. Um, due to the fact that it, there was so much different, so so many time lags in between the thrift shop stuff, um, I kept once uh, I'm a momentum kind of guy once I get some momentum going I start writing and I wrote a bunch of stuff that turned out really good that Bun liked and uh, got a friend in uh, friend in Rockford uh, who's going to sing on it and if he's too busy to sing then I'm going to sing on it we'll have a vanity thing and we're either going to call it something like the Northern Stars or Tangle Town or something mm-hmm. but uh, that's more me that's more like ouch that's, uh, I don't and that stuff that stuff will be more consistent as far as not quality wise, but consistent style wise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then then after I'm done with that, I think thrift shops thinking about doing some more stuff. And I would I would say that probably my favorite thrift shop song is Lucky Penny. I like that one a lot. Hey, hey, hey. In my 
kind of strange how you do things nowadays. It's uh, it's weird you don't even have to be in the same uh, room with people. It's it's kind of bizarre. Well, kind of like how we're it's, doing the show right now. Right. It's bizarre, but it's wonderful. It really is wonderful because you can buy, if you have a Mac, you can do GarageBand. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff that we recorded for Thrift Shop was done on GarageBand. Steve had some Pro Tools. I go with a different system. Um, but what's what's one of the really nice parts, for especially I, I would say it's for all musicians, but I would think especially wonderful for young people just starting out is that like all of the bands that we've talked about, if you wanted to do any kind of recording, you had to go into a recording studio and I forget what it was, $50 an hour, a hundred bucks an hour. Uh -huh. If you wanted to do a three song demo, you were spending a grand to three grand, depending upon what you were doing. Right. And it was just expensive. And now you can buy quality instruments for three to $500. You can record for next to nothing. All you need is a microphone and uh, you know one of the systems. And so, you know, Steve and I would get together, drink a lot of coffee, eat a bunch of magic brownies, and uh, just get fucked up. And because uh, neither of us drink, get fucked up, play, have a good time, and uh, that would be what it was, you know. And no expense except for the flight and the, the brownies. And, uh, the brownies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean it's just it's it's there's positives and negatives about it. You know, part of the the randomness to the new recording is that you can write a song but you're not with your drummer. And if you uh -huh. have a song and if you think of the song as this is how I think. I think of songs as templates. And if you have your basic song you can change what's underneath it and once you change what's underneath it you've got a different ar arrangement then you can change what's on top to fit the new rhythm section and you can really make a song pop where if you you're not with the drummer like on this thrift shop stuff because we weren't with the drummer you're just putting down your rhythm guitar stuff luckily we think the stuff came out out well but uh you know, they could have possibly been better if we would have had a full band experience. So there's negatives and there's positives.
Well, that was a real fun interview, and it was great for him to play those new tracks, and it's always great to hear more from Bunny Carlos as well. It's nice to hear those early stories about Cheap Trick. Can't get enough of that stuff. Uh, it's it's great kind of documenting Cheap Trick history with you, BJ. It's kind of fun. Yeah, 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 it's a lot of fun for me. I, I hope it's fun for the listeners. I hope, um, you know, people out there enjoy getting this kind of into this kind of minutia about the band. And we really think you should support this new project with Bunny Carlos. Anything with Bunny and the guys, just uh, let them know you love them, and you can do that uh, with your with your dollars. And at BJ, how can people get a hold of this? Yeah, on the, the the site CD Baby. If you go to CD Baby and and search for Thrift Shop, um, I think there's seven songs on there. And we will put it in the show notes as well. I don't know about you, BJ, but I think we have a new. Uh, you know, like live long and prosper kind of thing, and may it, it could be something like may no one shit in your glove box. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. All but, right. Uh, I don't know if you if you know that band off Broadway, but they were mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Well, that's another good one, and uh, hope you enjoyed all the rare tunes and the the, the cool interview. And uh, we'll see you on the next Cheap Talk episode. And until then, may no one shit in your glove box. That's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking. Get it together, BJ.